0: You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. This week's guest is someone that you may know as he spent some time in the National Football League, but he was also a Green Beret prior to landing a job with the Seattle Seahawks, and he is Nate Boyer. Just a quick note. Before we get to Nate, that he is a guy who is very active. He is traveling all over the country and sometimes all over the world. And because he travels so much, uh, he was on a Bluetooth headset for this podcast interview. So some of the sound quality, not as great as we've had with others. But obviously, Nate's story is one that needs to be told. And we welcome him into the Hazard Ground podcast. Nate, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you, man. Appreciate you having me.
0: Again, your story is not typical. A lot of the people that we talk to on the podcast, you know, they, either they go into the military at a high school or they, they know it's something that they always wanted to do. For you, it was a little bit of a different path. Prior to joining the military, tell us about your life and what you were doing.
1: Uh, like, you're talking about like immediately prior?
0: Well, not immediately. I mean, what led you to the decision to join the military?
1: Uh, yeah, you know, what, what really led me to the decision ultimately, was uh, some time I spent in the, in the job uh working, uh working at some uh, refugee camps doing some relief work. Uh, it wasn't through any particular organization, NGO, or anything. I worked with them, um, but to get myself over there, I sort of decided I to take it on my own and kind of make it happen. Uh, I, was, I was in my early 20s and I didn't have a degree or anything. At that time and yeah, I had I really thought about it I mean, uh, seriously. I thought, thought about it for a brief moment in high school, but uh, it wasn't something I, I, I legitimately considered. And then uh, I, I graduated high school. I moved down to uh, San Diego first, working a fishing boat for a while, and then up to Los Angeles, doing a bunch of odd jobs. And I kind of just lost. I didn't really have any purpose. Uh, wasn't fulfilled in a lot of ways. So I. When I heard about what was going on in in, uh, in Sudan, the genocide, I just wanted to help in some way. So I kind of, you know, I, I called every NGO first to see if I could go on to with them. I and they wouldn't let me because I didn't have an I didn't have the, it was like this extremely long vetting process. And I was like, "Look, people are dying over there. I want to do something to help now." And so um, what I ended up doing is just, like I said, body find my own plane ticket flying over there and like figure it out once I got on the ground, so I would later learn that, that was kind of my first uh special Forces mission <laughs> and uh but my time spent over there, you know, I just developed uh such a respect for for people in in places like that that have absolutely nothing in it and in some way um. You know, with that, and, and all, all they wanted, the essentials for survival. Um, and, and I just, I had this feeling that these people were worth fighting for more than just uh, people that I wanted to hand out uh, food or encouragement to. So, when I came, I came back to the states, and I went to the recruiter, heard about the 18x program, um, and then signed up, kind of. <laughs> with not a lot of knowledge of what the special forces um you know training was like but more with the knowledge of, of their mission and what they were about which was uh foreign internal defense and uh liberating the oppressed. So that was something that that, we, that was my motivation for joining it. Yeah, you
0: know, it's interesting because there are a lot of people who who do the S F thing, who do the special ops that I talk to that have that same mantra. You know, it just comes from a place where they just want to help. They want to make a difference. They, they want to change people and things and areas for the better. Uh, and, and I just think it's something that's innate in you guys. I think it's something that you're born with because not everybody, obviously not everybody's like that.
1: Right. And, and it's just that there's a lot of guys I think that come, into, um, that come into the Army that think they want to be a Green beret, but they don't understand the mission. <laughs> and uh, You know, everything that we do, all of our objectives, everything that we accomplish is by, with, and through uh, local nationals. So when we go to Iraq and we go to Afghanistan, we're fighting alongside Iraqis and Afghans, uh, which a lot of the military does now, but it always starts with the special forces. Um, Yes, there's the much sexier and cool stories of, like, the horse soldiers. You know, the first ones on the ground in Afghanistan with the Green Berets, like that, but, um, you know, the day-in and day-out operations of the the special forces always involve uh, local nationals, uh, no matter what country you're in, and uh, that can be uh, a huge challenge, but it is also very rewarding in a lot of ways, because you get to see the change firsthand in a lot of these people, and the appreciation for, you know, leaving what you have here to go over there fight for them. You know, you can see that um, with, with those people that from those places that want to want to improve their quality of life and make things better for their family.
0: All right, Nate, take me back to what you saw in Darfur for a second. Because was there something that I mean, I can only imagine just walking off the plane in Darfur with like no actual direction as far as where do I go, who do I talk to, and how do I help, and and just walking around looking for locals to say, hey, you know, do you need a hand? Was there anything, well, tell me about that experience first, but was there anything you saw in Darfur that said, you know what, it was a catalyst for the decision to go, you know what, I need need to have a purpose, and the military is my purpose?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I did as much research as I could, uh, actually, at the public library here in Los Angeles before I left. This was back in 2004, where the internet is just not what it is today, and uh, there wasn't a lot of information online but I did figure out where the refugee camps were located so I knew once I got to the capital there in Chad which is a neighboring country to the west you know I somehow I'd have to get myself out of the capital which you needed some special documentation you're supposed to have some special documentation to leave there um but I had to find a way to get out of there and then make my way over to uh the eastern border where the refugee camps were and uh You know, figuring uh, out—I guess—how to um, sweet talk somebody into letting me go because I didn't have that that proper paperwork, and I wasn't going to have it because I wasn't there with any organization. So, you know, that was that was a challenge. I remember getting off the airport in the middle of the night, and I didn't—I didn't leave the airport. So I figured, you know, if I leave, maybe I'll never get back in here, (laughs) and uh, I won't be able to get on another plane to get over to where I want to go. But I was able to track down the people who had to manifest for the U.N. flights. Uh, the United Nations High Commissioner of Refugees had these flights, a little twin-prop twin prop planes going, uh, flying across the, the Sahara and landing everybody refugee camps. And then people would link up with their contacts and go to work. Well, I obviously didn't have any contacts, but I was able to kind of BS my way on that flight and take an empty Hey, I'm here. You have to use me now. And uh, luckily, I found some a couple people that were that understood why I was there and didn't think I worked for the CIA or something because it was definitely those people too. <laughs> Thought I was some sort of a spy, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was funny. That's I mean uh, that's gonna be I, nuts. stripped down multiple times, but anyway, you know, really. And and once once I got over there and and, and found those people that were like, okay, look, what this guy has nothing on him. I have, a toothbrush and malaria pills. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? do? I'm not going to take pictures of anything or, you know, fascinate anybody or any weapons. So, uh, but, yeah, but, but but what really... Second part of your question, there was, was the kids, man. There's so many kids uh, that were so young and not even just... I don't even know if half of them understood that they'd never see their fathers again uh, or that their homes were, you know completely destroyed, their mothers were raped. Like, they don't even grasp that yet. They still have so much innocence. And just the thought of, uh, of, of, you know, what happens with a lot of the child soldiers over there. And the idea that I was born here with all these opportunities and choices and, and you know, uh, just a supportive nation in general, such a, such a much, uh, a place with no problems. When you compare them to the problems of the developing world, and, and I didn't do anything to deserve this, and they didn't do anything to deserve that, I just felt like it was uh, a duty of mine, or something important, that I did uh, at least attempted to do something to give them uh, a, a piece of the opportunities that I have, you know. Yeah, and, a... uh, and I thought, and I thought that, and I still think that um, it's difficult to challenging and as big a struggle as it is, uh, you know, war in in a lot of ways is is unfortunately necessary for those things because there's just so much, uh, there's just so much corruption in our world and there's just so many people that take advantage of the uneducated and the very few people in power in a lot of those places um, just inflict their will and it's just not fair. (laughs) And that was, that was, that was where it all came from.
0: It was just not fair to me. No, I mean, it's beautifully said, Nate. Uh, honestly, it, it's just... I think for people who have been deployed like myself and yourself, you see depravity all over the world. And, and honestly, everyday Americans don't have the capacity to really appreciate everything that we have. The simple thing, you flip on a light switch and the lights go on. You turn on the faucet and water comes out. Clean, drinkable water. I mean, these are, these are things that everybody takes for granted every day. And until you experience the other side, like you've seen both in Darfur and, and in Iraq, I mean, it's just, it's hard to really put into words to other people how blessed we really are sometimes.
1: And and, and this, speaking for myself, I even forget. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. It's so easy when we come back here because everything is, I mean, everything really is incredibly nice. <laughs> and, uh, of course, we're going to have, you know, our risks with the Politics and all kinds of stuff like that, but generally, I'm, I'm not too worried about us because I just know, that, you know, we, I'm not trying to say. It. I just I just know that we've overcome so much already, and um, we have so many checks and balances that everything's going to be okay. On um, places like that, you know, a new person or a new group comes into power, and like their lives have completely changed and it seems to be con- trending for completely changing for feel worse more often than not. Um, and, and it's just kind of it's, it's really scary. You know.
0: Agreed. I mean, hey, let, let's go forward here for a minute to when you signed up. You said you went to the recruiter. When you went there, did you know that you were going to sign up to be a Green Beret? Was that your intent?
1: Yeah, uh, it was. And I didn't even know what like I kind of said earlier. I didn't really know what the special Forces. Uh, actually done I just you know i've seen uh you know Rambo was a green beret and and uh, it's a good start all this other stuff and, and you, you kind of have this idea of what you think it is and then i I, I got back from the bus photo i read uh saw this magazine article that was like, it was written talking about um, talking about the eighteen x ray program, which is bringing uh civilians off the trees that pass a certain number of tests both physical and mental, to um, come into the infantry, go to basic, go to airborne school, and then if you pass those and you do well, you go to a pre-selection course and then you get to go straight to a selection course. You kind of go right into the Green Beret training if you, you know, if you pass everything, which is a small percentage of us, but I read that article and I was reading about what their actual mission is, you know, over there, what they actually do. And, you know, I kept seeing the word indigenous, you know, and indigenous working with indigenous forces, and that, I just come back from, from doing that, and I was like, oh my gosh, like I, have, I have a knack for this, I love this, I can relate to, to people when there's that language barrier and all that, and I just, I actually want to be a part of this mission. Um, so so that, once I found out what they actually did, I was just like, this is the only job I want to do in the military, so I have. And I guess having that mindset when I went into the training too really helped because it was like for me I didn't want to be at any other unit. No other unit was going to be good enough for me. Um, and not that that sounds really bad, I guess you can say it like that. It just just not that I'm too good for that unit, but just what I wanted wasn't in line necessarily with what those other units were were focused on. What I wanted was 100 percent what the special forces were doing over there, you know.
0: No, again, well said, and I understand what you mean when you say it's what you want. A lot of guys who go who make it into Special Forces and actually get their tab uh, have that same mentality. Th- this is what I want to do in the military. This is for me. It- it's not guys who, hey, I was an infantryman, and you know I wanted to try something tougher or a next level. Those are the guys I find when I talk to that end up going through it, and they just don't make it because that internal drive is what separates guys who end up completing all the training and getting a tab versus guys who don't. Am I off on that?
1: No, one hundred percent. It's not always. You know, it's funny. I remember looking around at the you know at the classroom before selection, and there's there's some guys that totally look the part. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. burly, you know, freaking chiseled, athletic, definitely smart. Uh, blah, 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 all those little all those things that you think, oh, this guy's definitely going to make it. And then there's the guys <laughs> at the time that looked like me, <laughs> and some of these other guys that were just a little bit maybe smaller, and, uh, or even guys that were a potential weight, you know, and not the brightest guys in the world. But what set them apart was the passion for their job, you know, and, what the, and they, they, they wanted to be a part of this more than anything. They were willing to sacrifice all the comforts and the, the, go through the pain and understand that this has been completely stuck for the you next know, year and a half. Um, but at the end, it's what I want, so I have to go through this phase. I have to, you know, put up with this. And those are the guys that made it. And, you know, you know it was just it's just such a mix at the end of the day when you, when you walk into a team room even now and you see all the guys in my team there, they don't all look like clones. You know what I mean? But, right. Uh, they're just all different skin colors and sizes, in all parts of the country. And some of them uh, grew up, you know, on the farm, hunting every day and all that. And some of them were like me; cause I barely shot a gun in his life growing up, uh, kind of a city boy. You know what I mean? Uh, just I had something else to offer, something different to offer, and a different reason for me wanting to do this. And, uh, but those are the those are the ones that those are the ones that make it
0: what was tougher for you? Was it the assessment and selection portion or the actual qualification course?
1: Um, probably, honestly, the qualification course. And I would say the assessment and selection is physically very much harder. And even mentally in some ways as far as like you've got to be completely focused and, and, uh, and, you know, you're deprived of sleep and food and stuff like that. You've got to like still be locked in and moving forward. But, for me, it was like I love the competition aspect that came with selection, and uh, and that you know you're kind of racing everybody else, and you don't even know what the time standards are, so it's just go as hard as you can for as long as you can because you don't know if you're going fast enough, and uh, and a lot of it also was different from in the special forces and any other uh, special operations unit uh, or any unit really through our selection process. Almost everything's individual. You do have a team where you get the end, but you're out on your own. You're out walking around, wandering around in the woods, looking for specific specific point. You know what I mean on a map with a compass, uh, and you're crossing, you know, miles and miles of rough terrain, and you're 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 completely You're you're alone with your thoughts and your own doubts uh, <laughs> and and uh, insecurities and all that stuff, and you got to overcome that. And every day is just a, you know, another grind. Uh, you got to kind of get through. And um, for me, I just, I don't know, I like the idea of that. I like the, the idea that I was like, literally on my own earning my way in. Um, but I kind of have that blue-collar mentality like that. I, I love to, to push myself uh, physically, because every time you push yourself physically, you do it hard enough and long enough, you, you, you end up pushing yourself quite a bit mentally. And uh, so, so, for me, I, I don't know. Once I got to the qualification course itself, there was so many, so much more stuff in the schoolhouse, and then also, you know, learning all of the uh, learning all of the tactics and and specific uh, the, the, the trades you had to learn for your MLS, for your job. Um, that was a little bit more challenging for me. Maybe. Sometimes I had trouble focusing in the classroom and stuff like that. Um, so I, I definitely had more of a challenge going through that stuff than I did just you know out in the wilderness in, with a giant rucksack on your back, just kind of going for it. It's a lot simpler again in this situation.
0: That well, seems to make sense. I mean, it's just the environment with which you operate in, you know, individually. That's better. Some people operate alone better, and some people work in groups better. It's it's kind of what the dynamic of of the military in general, the team teamwork that you want. You get a whole bunch of different people. When you got your tab uh, that day that you got it, I mean, it must have been one of the proudest days of your life.
1: Oh yeah, I'll never I'll never forget it. And you know, I just remember I remember both the day. I remember the day at the end of selection when I got selected, and I remember. Yeah, i my, my pad and my green beret uh, at the end of the Q course. But at the end of the Q course, my, uh, you know, my family came out, so that was really cool. Um, my, my folks, I mean, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not to, I'm not married to kids or anything like that, but I had uh, my folks came out and were able to spend the day and, and see that. And, you know, I just remember how proud my, my mom and my dad were, um, and that meant a lot to me because <laughs> they'd seen the other side of what I could have gone and what I was doing when I was a little bit younger. And uh so that was that I mean that felt that felt amazing in its own right, but also just knowing you, you, you get through something like that and you accomplish something like that, you know, and it's like um it feels like you've gone through so much and you really haven't gone through anything yet you are still I mean that's not getting deployed. You haven't uh, uh, haven't done haven't done the actual work. You know, I haven't, I haven't applied what you learned yet, um, so it's sort of a it's a weird it's a weird feeling of accomplishment. Like oh, like I did it, you know, but I really haven't done anything. And then you got to, you know a week later, you're going to go meet your new team, and you're going to be the new guy, and uh, you're not going to even have to relearn everything because every team operates differently, and does everything different. Um, so I don't know, it's a mix, but at the same time, just to, to know that you know, that I that I'd finished this thing and then I, I, I set out a goal and I had this dream, you know, a couple years before. And you know, through the ups and downs and challenges I, I I didn't quit and I just finished and I just you know, I got through it and uh, yeah, it I mean it's a great you know, it's has an amazing thing one going to serving one almost every unit in the history of any nation in the
0: so many special forces guys talk about, uh, you know, the memories they have of guys that they were in class with, both in assessment selection and the actual Q course. Uh, there's always one guy that everybody, you know, kind of scratched their head at and like, how the hell did he get here? Kind of deal. And there's another guy who's just an absolute superstar. What were the guys in your class like? Do you still have relationships with any of those guys?
1: <laughs> yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm, I was probably one of the guys, or at least some of the the regular army guys we were back on the course, was scratching their head, like, what the hell is this guy doing here? <laughs> I didn't mean that in a disparaging remember. way. <laughs> no, it's funny. I just remember. So, when I was in selection, I had to. I wore contacts back then, and they won't let you wear contacts on these got in the field. And so, I had to wear, you know, my. These, uh, what did you say? Not, not the BCG. No, I was going to say the BCG. Yeah, what they, they, they,
0: they call the birth control glasses. No,
1: they were like these. uh... It was these other like high quote unquote high speed glasses that uh I don't know they 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 were they are almost like you almost like swim goggles in some way they had like that black like rubber band going around.
0: ah uh, I, I know which ones you're talking about, yeah,
1: you know what I'm talking about mm-hmm. I, they look almost like like kind of kind of pilot glasses or glasses or something like that anyway, I had those things, and I also had like my civilian just regular normal looking glasses and uh and so one of the nights about midway to selection, election, you know, we were supposed to be outside ready to go, you know, with our rucks packed up everything set for this you know, whatever event. They don't tell you what you're going to do every time. You know, they just say, like, be here at this time in this uniform uh, with this equipment, and then we will give you the rest of the information at that moment. <laughs> and so we were all out there standing tall, and I'm like, I remember I'm like downing in water, you know, trying to act like a little underhydrated so I'm drinking uh, not sipping out of the campaign, like chugging out of the camp and kinda fill up, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, we're standing there for a while, then all of a sudden they come out and say, "I right, get back in your hoochies, you know, and come back out in you know, six hours or something. So everyone just says Oh, cool, you could sleep. So go back inside the hoochies and hang our stuff up, you know, and I lay down and fall asleep and I wake up in the middle of the night and I have to, like, this, like, none other, you know. And the bathrooms are, you know, a couple hundred yards from where my hooch is. And you have to, you know, you got to go to the bathroom. Uh, you got to go in the bathroom or whatever. I wake up, I'm like, i got to pee so bad. And I'm scrambling around. I can't find my glasses. I can't find my flashlight to find my glasses. I'm, like, blinded the back. You know, I put my shower shoes on, like, stumble outside. And I'm outside and I literally cannot tell which way anything, like I can't, <laughs> I just can't see, my vision is really bad. And I'm just like lost and I'm gonna piss my pants. So i like, i build, whatever building was in front of me, I kinda, and it's like middle of the night, it's like 80, I'm half asleep. Every building in front of me, I kinda stumble up to the building, walk around the corner, and just, you know, whip it out and start peeing. <laughs> and like, seconds later, I hear this guy's voice stand next to me. He's just like, you know, what's your roster number? And I was like, uh, 32. You know, and I finished team. And he goes and wakes up the entire class. Oh, no. Wakes up everybody in the class. Yeah. And stands me in front of the whole class, you know, and tells tells me to explain to everybody why they just got woken up I tell them I say yeah. I told them the story. I'm like I couldn't I couldn't see anything. I got out. I had to go. I just went. You know, I bothered, blah blah blah. And then they decided to have the peer eval session the next morning. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no no. out. Yeah exactly. So I'm thinking like oh my god like. Um, luckily, I had a contingency of people that other 18 X-rays that I'd gone. Even since like, basic training has been through stuff with the training is that made it their duty because they knew that I was not a bad dude. I just, <laughs> I made a big mistake. And was, I, I just if they were in my situation, I think anybody would have done the same thing. You're not going to fish with your pants. Or, I don't know, I didn't know what else to do. I was I, I'm going to have to go. So they walked around to all the individual groups and hooches and scenes and said, hey, just so everybody knows, like, that oh, dude's a good dude. You know right. what I mean? Right. And, and whatever. Do what you do. I think I still got a decent amount of uh, pink slips from that event. But at the same time, I was winning, I think, pretty much every run of Ruck March in the class, in the entire class, if I have seen a couple hundred guys. I was coming in, like, first or second place on everything. So uh, that that was physical in nature of the event, which is multiple selection and uh, also the land navigation thing. And so that helped me, I think, because I remember later them talking about, you know, I know they were referencing me, they were talking about it's not all, you know, it's not all physical out here. Just if you end up, you know, just if you're first and this and that, it doesn't mean you're a good soldier. And but I guess I did good enough for them to keep me around. And uh, fortunately, Fortunately, survived that event. But, uh, uh, yeah, I guess I was honored that I shouldn't
0: have been there. <laughs> but, the, you know, you bring up a good point because the peer evals are huge. For those who don't know, in, in the SF community, in the special ops community, it, the peer evaluation, what your fellow teammates think of you, is massive because these are the people who are ultimately going to put their life in your hands and vice versa. So in order to, to hang around, you've got to let people know that, hey, I'm just not out for me. I'm looking out for the guys next to me, and I'm going to take care of everybody else before I take care
1: of myself. Yeah, I mean, that's, if you don't have that mentality, it gets out. It gets discovered quickly, you know, and, and, and that's why we do team week as well. You know, team week, uh, there's, uh, you know, we do peer evaluations almost every day throughout team week. And uh, and we do them throughout the sequels in different states and stuff. Here. Um, you know, but it matters. People, you know, once you once you once things get difficult around a group of people, uh, the ones that aren't prepared to, to handle that and, and don't know that that everybody else is struggling too, it's not all about you anymore. Uh, that stuff comes out, you know. People's true, true, true colors come out when they. When, uh, there's you know, some suffering involved. <laughs> and, uh, and it's important to see because you don't... You know, if you don't want your, that guy around you in that moment, you're definitely not going to want him and cause you in a firefight. Or on a year-long deployment, in you know, in the middle of nowhere with just you and your 12-man team. You have to live with this guy every day for some of the day-to-day stuff. I mean, just, it makes a difference. And so... Yeah, periods out, kind of a deep part of it. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, uh, I remember having, I, I remember those guys in my team, you like, know, there was a couple guys on my team, and I was like, these guys are not the right guys. Just, they're not, uh, they're falling apart, you know, they're breaking down, and things are getting tough, and when they're put in a leadership position, they just don't know how to handle it. There's no, uh, they lose all tact. You know what I mean, and mm-hmm. uh, and the simple, uh, simple respect you should have for for each guy on the team, no matter what their rank is and all that stuff. In those situations, that you, you need each person. You got to win. You got to win hearts and minds over ski. You got to win hearts and minds of your teammates too. And uh, if you don't have that that sort of grace <laughs> uh, in communication and, and uh, understanding that like, you're not the only one that's talking right now, um, people just don't want to be around you. Because so much of what we do sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it's part of the mission. You know what I mean? There's some really cool stuff that we do, but there's a lot of stuff that sucks. And uh, the last thing you want to be around is negative people and stuff sucks, you know?
0: All right, well, speaking of the suck, uh, which is also known as Iraq gen- in general, because uh, for those of us who have been there, it, it does suck on several levels. But uh, as you said, there are some cool things going on. Now, Iraq wasn't your first assignment. Where did you get stationed first, and then what ta- when did you get
1: to Iraq? I, I-, I got stationed a 50 key course, and I went to the first group out in Okinawa. First battalion out there. It was my first duty station. And I'll just be honest, then I got out there, and it was, beautiful, the country of view, of everything is great, and nice. Everyone's like, you know, you're so lucky to be stationed out here, but you know, I, can, I understand that, but I wanted, to go, I wanted to go to Iraq at that time. I mean, Iraq was sort of the hot spot. This is, uh, end of 06, I saw, beginning of 07, and, um, and I was frustrated to find out that I was going to be first in, in the big debt for a couple of months, single attachment, and then I was going to be the team I was going to be put on was going to be a new team, a completely completely new team that was sort of building up. Their first mission was going to be in the Philippines right here. And I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, not that that's not an important mission. I understand people have to do that, but I'm a cherry, and the reason I joined is because I want to go to uh, those places, the most austere environments. You know what I mean? And I wanted mm-hmm. to go to war. Good. And I wanted to put my training to work. And so these recruiters came in from a another unit that they or may not exist, And I went to the recruiting meeting after only being in the first group for like three months. And I talked to the recruiter afterwards. and said, look, I've only been in the Army for two years, which I know you're supposed to be in for quite a bit longer to even apply for it, and I've never deployed that, but, you know, I've got my proper clearances done and everything like that. I just wanted an Italian PT test that we did last week. I'm in shape. You know, is there any way I can apply and, you a lot of the public law, that possibility, and he said, probably not, but here's my information. All your stuff. So I did. I sent all my stuff in at week. You know, I'm kind of waiting to hear back. Like a month later, a few weeks out from the election, the next election they were having, I got a letter from them saying that, uh, or an email from them saying that I, they got me a slot. Somebody dropped out, and I got the last slot in the class. So I went out to, uh, I went out to that course. went through. Uh, so I went through a good amount of that and I was so green I was so young army time wise Than we expected you to, and done absolutely great. But the fact that it remains, you've only been in the army for two years, and you don't have any deployments in the month. So that's why I'm here. Like, all I want to do is deploy. I want to go to Iraq, you know. So they said, All right, well, we're going to make out almost every night, um, you know, fighting side by side along with the the Iraqi, uh, you know, Special Operations Unit, and, um, no, it was great. I mean, more than anything, I I just really, obviously, I loved my teammates and and doing the work with them, but seeing the change and those people there and watching some of those soldiers develop, some of the, the young Iraqi soldiers develop, um, Knowing the challenges they face with the lack of education and uh, resources it's just great to see the you know the tangible uh, knowing that you are making a difference in at least few people's uh careers and lives and um and you know, and seeing the appreciation for us being there. because you don't always do that you know a lot of times you're, you know when you're, when you're on patrol or whatever and people are you know, kids are throwing rocks at you, or whatever, I mean that can be it can be really frustrating. So it's good to see the other side of that too. I think yeah. that's one one thing that's unique in the special for is you, you to get to see that, that side of things sometimes. Okay, the, uh, a lot of unique
0: to see. There is there is a lot of that. I was fortunate enough to be attached to fifth and tenth group when I was there from oh five to oh six, and it's just like you say. There were, there were times when you'd have missions that just kind of stunk and didn't really yield anything. But there are other times when you go out to a school and you give kids school supplies and you see how excited they are and that they think the world of you. And then you work with some of these soldiers who, who you know, show the patriotism that we feel as Americans. And they want to defend their country. They want to defend their nation. And to work side-by-side side with those people, I think, was one of the most rewarding things, at least for me when I work with the ISOF guys. It was one of the most rewarding things Is to watch them grow and be able to stand on their own two feet. It's almost like raising a child to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, absolutely. exactly like that. I mean, well, I've never raised a child but uh, <laughs> I, I, but yeah, it does feel like that. You feel like a you know, like a like a big brother in a lot of ways. And uh, no, that's that's huge. I, I love this just just like what you said about the patriotism, mean, you know. I I remember my, my very last very last mission I was ever on, the very last firefight I was ever in, in Afghanistan, um, the, the the captain, the Afghan captain, um, for the special forces team we were with, you know, was, was shot and killed. And I remember our helo coming in, you know, the American medevac helo coming in to take his body away. And I don't think this was supposed to happen. Okay. Typically only Americans are supposed to approach to our, our aircraft and stuff like that, but we had a... It was really cool to see that this happened. It was, it was three Americans and three Afghans carrying the gurney of the fallen Afghan captain out to the American uh, medevac for to be taken off. Wow. And you know what I mean? It was just that... I remember just watching that happen, that image, and while wow, wow, it was very sad, that we lost... Uh, we lost the captain today. Um, it was a powerful image for me, and it, to see that sort of trust and, like you said, that, that patriotism, and um, how they really care about the ones they're fighting alongside as well, no matter who, what flag's on their shoulder. And uh, and, and, they, and they put the they put the gurney on the bird, and you know they're coming back off the uh, coming back off the LZ, and the bird's taken off and you know, kicking up the dirt and dust and all that stuff, and one of the Afghan soldiers that were coming back just, like, dropped to his knees and, like, started weeping in the middle of the field, you know, and he was just like, man, I, saw, I just saw him, his body and his face, like, I mean, that was his friend, but that was also his leader, and that was, um, you know, that, that was his brother, that was the reason he was fighting was that guy. You know what I mean? It's just like the reason we do a lot of what we do. is just about the man next to us. So to see that, you know, it's not for a paycheck, it's not for any other reason, but um, the ones that, you know, they care about and, uh, and their country. And it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a sad moment, but at the same time, like, you see those little glimmers of hope in there um, that, that make, <laughs> that make those hardest times those toughest missions and those, those, those situations where you're, like, wondering, why am I here, what are we really doing here? It, it, it helps those, those moments sort of make sense when you see that, you know. Uh,
0: again, what, very, very well said. Now, uh, did you ever get emotional in, in any of your deployments, either because of anything that went on with your guys or because of a connection to the guys you were working with alongside?
1: Honestly, I, I don't know if I just flip something off when I'm over there, but, but, but no. <laughs> no. But every time I came home, you know, I, I deployed. I went to Iraq once and Afghanistan twice. And, and every time I came home, and the first after my first deployment, I remember I came back from Iraq to uh, came back to, to Philadelphia. Actually, my brother was going to uh, my brother was uh, going to Penn, a, a school out there, and he was on the wrestling team. So I went out, I came back, and this was in uh, I don't know it was, it was January or February or so. I got back to his state, and then you know I took leave and I went out to Philadelphia to see him and, um, and, and it was some like wrestling tournament or whatever and they had a guy come back that used to be on the wrestling team that went into the military and, and he, he joined a, uh, in special operations I can't even remember what, what he did what unit he was in but he's up there speaking about his, he's speaking about his time at 10 when he was arrested and talking about um you know, what it meant to him, you know, fighting for what we had to, and started talking about someone, I think, one of his brothers that he lost over there, and he, he got a little bit choked up, and I, like, lost it. And I think it was all, like, that stuff I was stuffing down and holding down over the last, what like, nine, ten months. Um, but it just, like, it was, like, embarrassing, I don't know how I was... <laughs> I, you know, I'm crying. And I remember, like my mom, my mom was there. You know, she I looked over, and she's like, "Oh me!" <laughs> you know, and I'm like, "Oh God, get away from me!" <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think I think I always kind of just held that stuff in. You know, and know when I when I remember, you know, people I served with that aren't here anymore, or, or situations, and speak and, and about them with other people. Sometimes I get. You know, I, I didn't really choked up about that, but I never really, I never really got that way over there. And I, I think it was just a defense mechanism, and knowing that I had to stay switched on, you know, until this thing was over, and I couldn't let that, I couldn't let those emotions affect me, and it might affect my work.
0: You know? Yeah, no, I, and I think a lot of, you know, people who have served can can sympathize with that that thought process. I mean, I know there are certain things when I see. That are military related uh, that that still get me all choked up. My wife will look at me kind of crooked eyed, like, "What's wrong?" You know, it, and it's it's hard to explain what the connection is to all of it internally. But if if you've gone through the suck, as we've called it, and and, you, and you've worked next to guys day in and day out, uh, I think you I think you grow to understand you know, what it means to truly care about somebody more than yourself. I mean, again, you, you take the American lifestyle and everything that we have and everything that's around us, and you kind of forget the simple things that, that the connections that make things special. And when that's, when you're brought back to those moments, it, it can be definitely emotional for anybody. And, and to all the veterans listening, you know, just as a kind of little PSA, if you will, Nate, and I, know, I know that you work with veterans now, but don't hold anything in anymore. I mean, you know, go talk to somebody. If you're, if you're struggling with somebody, go talk to somebody.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. No. I mean, there's a uh, survivor's guilt and, and and a lot of issues for for us coming back, especially once we get out. Um, we don't have that community anymore, and that uh, sort of outlet. It can be, you know, can really consume us. and I know it, it does that to a lot of people. Um, yeah, and that's one thing about that, that that's sort of changing, which I like, is the fact that it's okay for us now to it's seen as okay in our community to to go talk to somebody about something and to to have feelings like that's all (laughs) right normal and uh, yeah but we're still you know we're still leaving Uh, there's there's different studies that have different numbers but we're leaving you know 20 to 22 veterans a day to to suicide still and uh, and a lot of that I think not having that outlet anymore not having that community and then also not having, not feeling like you have that purpose anymore, and, uh, and being, maybe that feeling that you, you'll never do anything as important as what you did over there, Yeah, um, which, which doesn't have to be true at all, you know, not at all. I mean, I think that there's so much opportunity for us to well, it's just do, a, it's do a different different things than we get over there now, because of what we've sacrificed and what we've survived. We have a certain, um as Liam Neeson would say, we have a certain set of skills. you know, that, uh, uh, that sets us apart from, from from a typical person because of, of what we overcome. So uh, use that to our advantage. You know what I mean? Even all the pain and the, the terrible things that we uh, witnessed and had to go through, and the people we lost. Uh, what better way to honor them than to go, you know, do something incredible uh, for the rest of your life? And that can be that can 100 be in the service and world of service uh, for others.
0: Now, Nate, why why did you end up getting out? I mean, some people make a whole career out of it, but was there anything in particular? Did you feel like you just wanted to do something different?
1: Um, I just have a lot of dreams. I always have. I've got a lot of things I want to try and I want to do. And it was a tough decision because I had the opportunity also to go back over to that other unit that I was talking about earlier Uh, and potentially finish my training there and, and serve with them. But that was going to be a big commitment, and that was probably going to be a career move if I did that. And there was another part of me that I still wanted to go to college, and I wanted to, I wanted to go try and play football. It was just something that I never did. And I know it sounds maybe childish, but it was like this regret I had that I never played, and I wanted, to, I wanted to do that. I didn't want to live with that regret. And uh, it was a really hard decision, but I went out and did that. You know, I went, went back to college. And, I, and even after, after a year in college, I missed the military so much I signed back up for through uh, the National Guard I was in 19 Special Forces for my last four years in college and actually went overseas every summer somewhere and served for about about three or four months before coming back to school so I still was able to keep that in my life but but yeah I just I just really wanted to to do that and I was 29 28 or 29 28 when I made the decision 29 when I actually went off to college and it was Sort of for me, I just felt like if I didn't go now, at least with the football aspect, if I didn't go now, I was not have done it. That wasn't going to happen. I was going to be too old, and um, too many things would have happened. Yeah. Other things, other opportunities would have came came off. so I just, I just decided to go for it, you know. And I had the encouragement of a couple of my a few of my buddies on the on my SF team that team. Were like, dude. and over there. Great. that's the come from,
0: I think. We, We've all been there one time or another, especially if you get back from a deployment, like you said, it's it's just the decompression is is sometimes difficult to deal with. You mentioned football. You, you go play at Texas. Uh, was the NFL something that you wanted to do, or did that just kind of come about because of how well you played and, and who you were?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, that was always something I wanted to do when I was a little kid, you know, of, I was Joe Montana for Halloween two years All
0: right. ago,
1: <laughs> when I was like four and five. You know? So I definitely, yeah, growing up as a, as a young man, I wanted to be a pro athlete in some way, but the reality of that, uh, you know, my late teens came crashing down, it was probably wasn't going to happen. And, uh, and I, when I was at college, I really wasn't thinking about that, to be honest. I was like, you know, I'll go I'll play college football. By the time I, I graduate, I'll be 33. I mean, that's pretty old. For uh, for the NFL, and uh, but, but I, I ended up playing that starting job at Texas for, as a starting long snapper for the last few years. And you know, at the end of my senior year, I got invited to play in this All Star game called the Medal of Honor Bowl, actually in Charleston, And uh, so I flew out there, went to play in the game that week. Uh, that week before the game in practices. There's like 100 scouts from these NFL teams that come to be practicing and just watch the guys. And so I had scouts from several different teams come up to me and be like, Yeah, hey, our GM said to come meet you, and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the typical long snapper in the NFL is about 6'3, 6'4, you know, 240 or 250 pounds. Well, I'm like five ten and a half. and a At the time when I was out there, I was about 190, 195 pounds. And they straight up said you're gonna to have to put on about forty pounds <laughs> you know, if you wanna <laughs> shout at this. But uh, you know, it's January now and they uh the draft is the end of April, beginning of May, so it's up to you but you'd know, you have to put some work in to try to make this happen. So I just said, Screw it, I'll go for it. If nobody calls by May second, which is the last day of the draft, then uh you know, I'll just lose the weight move on with my life. And uh, so I trained for it. I came out to L.A. started training at Unbreakable Performance Center, which is uh, Jay Glazer's gym. I don't know if you know Jay Glazer. Yep, gym. absolutely. And, uh, yeah, great guy. We ended up starting a nonprofit together. And uh, a huge veteran supporter. And, and so I, I came out here and started training. And um, sure enough, and, you know, the draft draft day rolled around, the last day of the draft. And, um, you know, the Seahawks, the Seahawks and the and the Rams ended up calling me, and I had to choose between one of the two. It's a really hard decision. But at the time, the Rams were in St. Louis, and the Seahawks were in Seattle, and the Seahawks had just been the back-to-back Super Bowls. And, um, I just wanted to, for me, I was like, you know, what's going to be a bigger challenge? <laughs> maybe stupid, maybe stupid to think, uh, but I just wanted to, I wanted to go to the most elite team at that moment, and so I made the decision to. You know, to accept the, the Seahawks offer, even though I was, i grew up a Niners fan. It's like the rival. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so I did it, and it was—I mean, it was amazing. I went up there, and I went to the training camp, and I, I played in the played the whole second half of that first preseason game last year against the Broncos, who ended up going on to win the Super Bowl. I mean, it was just honestly like a dream, sort of. It, it really felt—it was unreal to. Standing on the sideline, listening to the national anthem in you know the Seattle Seahawks NFL uniform, but they, all the fans and the whole deal. I was just like, "Wow, this is so weird." And I was 34. All right, you know, I'm 30. I was the oldest rookie in NFL history, and I'm like, it's just another one of those moments where I'm like, I'm just not supposed to be here. Awesome, <laughs> you yeah, know,
0: so. Well, is football completely done for you? Have you moved on?
1: Yeah, it is. You know, I I, uh, I trained throughout the uh, throughout the rest of that season, and I uh, had some interest from a couple teams, but I ended up not. You know, none of them signed me, and I trained in the beginning of the off season this year. Um, but once uh, once training camp, and once those really, really once OTA started back in uh, I guess May. Um, and I still haven't found the team. It was just tough to keep that weight on. I, w- I got all the way up to 228 pounds, so I was able to I put on over about 35 pounds from um, from that Medal of Honor bowl, you know, just to get that shot in Seattle. I had to, and I'm not supposed to weigh that much. That's just I'm, just, you know, I'm just not my frame's not that big, right? And so keeping the weight on was one one of the challenges. It's just, it didn't feel great. Um, so once I I kind of made that decision this summer, um, early in the summer here, to, uh, to go ahead and just lose the weight, get back to uh, and moving on with all these other things that I do not do. And uh, so I'm <laughs> I'm already back there. I'm like 180 pounds right now. I lost, I lost it so bad.
0: Back to your normal playing weight, as they say. <laughs> yeah. So what's, exactly. what's next for you now? I mean, wh- wh- where can people find you? What's next for you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm involved with a couple of a couple of non-profits that I'm really excited about. So one of them is MVP, which I slightly mentioned, stands for Merging Vets Players, the one started the I started with Jig Raisers. And, uh, I've been doing a lot of work with, uh, with some homeless vets here in Los Angeles area. Um, but the main idea of this is to bring together, you know, ex-athletes, uh, elite athletes and elite warriors in the battlefield together, uh, because they sort of have a lot of have a lot of similarities in, um, in mindset and also a lot of them having trouble with the transition. You know what I mean? Obviously they come from really different places and I would never try to say that an athlete sacrifices and, and, and you know goes through what a soldier or a veteran goes through it. So. Um, but they do have uh, some similarities and they have a mutual respect for each other and it's kind of been cool to see these guys come together so at least every Thursday, out here in L.A., um, we, 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 at 2 so p.m., which will be today, this Thursday, um, we have uh, uh, about 15 to 20 of these guys that have been coming to the gym up there at To Unbreakable, and then we have different athletes uh, from USC, UFC, from um, the NFL, from the NHL that will come in and train with these guys and, uh you know, we sit around afterwards and kind of have a fireside chat. and Everybody talks about where they're at. I mean, these guys, a lot of these deaths, like I said, are either homeless or have been homeless, uh, suicide attempt, pill addiction, like all, you know, major PTSD issues, all this stuff. But, you know, when we build that community again around out here and kind of keep pushing them forward, not just like, hey, let's just get back to a place where we're not going to kill ourselves. No, let's like push ourselves to do some great things in our community and see, um, you know, be men and women of service once again and and, and to see them get back on their feet and go crush life. And, and, you know, I'm doing a Tough mutter with a big group of them in October here. Some of these guys, you know, they didn't touch us. they They didn't exercise one second after they, you know, got out of the Marine Corps five years ago, you know, and now they're like, Kind of piece everything back together and challenging himself in that way. So, so, that's one of them. And the other one, the other big nonprofit I'm involved with is uh, called Water Boys, which was started by Chris Long. Chris Long uh, was a defensive end for the Rams. Right now, he's a uh, coach of the Patriots. He's uh, Howie Long's son, actually. And uh, it's a clean water project. And he started out in Tanzania, and you know, he got NFL players involved with some of the fundraising stuff. But he asked me if I'd like to be involved because of my Africa connection. And uh, what I decided to do was I took a, a single-leg amputee out last year, above the knee amputee, um, to go attempt Kilimanjaro uh, in Tanzania. And we raised about 120000 for clean water wells before we went. And uh, he didn't finish the climb. He attempted. He didn't make it all the way up. Uh, I, I went ahead and, and knocked it out um, and then came back down and met him. And we went to the into the villages where the well sites are being dug and visited with the, with the Messiah warriors around the tribe and these people. And uh, it's incredible. So we're, we're planning on going back again this next year with a group uh, of the I think. And uh going to all climb together and try to get this thing done. But uh, anyway, that's, that's some of the nonprofit stuff. Otherwise, I'm, I'm working in and uh, Television industry now I'm, I'm actually technically a producer now wow. a, uh, an ind- independent film we're, we're this close to going into production on and it's uh, it's called Thunder Road it's about the veteran suicide epidemic and uh, you know it's a, it's a lower budget film four million it dollars it's going to make a lot of money to me but as far well, as movies go it's low budget I guess and uh, and then I just I just scrapped the uh, I can't talk specifically about this project, but there was a video game project that kind of had some of the similarities to my story. And uh, so they had me involved with that. And I am actually play one of the characters in the video game. Nice. believe believe it or not, I'm acting. There you go. Acting (laughs) acting like what, I don't know.
0: I think the best part of that story was how you just said, well, I went out and knocked out the rest of climbing Mount Kilimanjaro as if it was, you know, Something simple to do. I just went out and knocked it out, but I guess that kind of speaks. To, out, yeah, <laughs> I guess that kind of speaks to just your entire story. It's inspirational to say the least. It's amazing. Uh, I'm glad and thankful that you spent some time with us here on the podcast. Uh, I, I hope people will continue to seek you out. I know you're going to continue to do great things. And and honestly, just thank you so much for your time.
1: Hey, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it, brother.
0: You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see
1: you next time.